Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we begin a new chapter this morning. We've said that the book of Thessalonians is really broken into three chapters and three, three ideas. He comforts them in persecution. He gives them comfort as he corrects them about the future. And now as he comes into the end, he gives them a call, a correction and behavior. And so he is going to give them some exhortation. And really, maybe we come to the purpose of the writing of the letter, a correction of some who are, shall we say, not working. And so Paul will deal with them later on in the chapter. But our text this morning will simply be verses 1 to 5. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Listen as Paul writes. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Join with me as I pray this morning before we walk our way through this text this morning. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know you, that we might know what you expect from us and how we are to behave. And so this morning, again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that he would illuminate the truths of your word, and that you would use your word as you see fit in our lives, whether it's to encourage us, whether it's to break us down, whether it's to harden us, Lord, we don't know. But we pray that you will, your word will be honored and glorified this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. So we are beginning a a new chapter and we are really starting into what the first time where he's going to give an exhortation and he's going to call on them and he's going to correct some of their behavior. But as he gets into that, Paul begins this section with, with really what is a mutual prayer, a call for prayer for himself. And then he bursts out in prayer for them in verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And so Paul is here again, maybe encouraging the Thessalonians, and he is, he is also wanting to rec- them to recognize the steadfastness of God, the faithfulness of God, and that things are going to be okay. And he wants them to see the, the, the benefit of mutual prayer. I pray for you, you pray for me. And therefore, God will work and God is faithful and and we will put these things in God's hands. But as he does that, he also lays out for us, really, I would say, four, four activities that we need to be involved in as a church. Four activities that are, should be, exemplify who we are as a church. They are things that a mature church, a growing church will exhibit and needs to be doing and really Paul lays out maybe some pastoral concern and he says often 
times you guys get to t- I are told what I need to do, but today I want to tell you what should be you should do, what you should your behavior should be. And so Paul lays out four activities that we should be doing as a church, both as a church and also as individuals in our homes. And he says, first of all, you should be praying. You should be a praying church and you should be praying for those in ministry, for those who are sharing the gospel. And Paul lays that out in verses 1 and 2 where he, he calls them to pray for, that the word of God would spread and be glorified and for the safety of the messengers in verse 2. And so he says, I want you to be a praying church. This is what you can do. Secondly, he says, not only are you to be a praying church, but he says, I want you to be a trusting church. He says in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. And he goes on to encourage them in the faithfulness of God. And they need to be trusting that God will strengthen and preserve them. In all of their trials, God will keep them going. And then he says, you need to be an obeying church, an obeying church. He says, we have confidence in the Lord concerning that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. In other words, as we teach, you need to obey what the, the principles of God's word, and therefore you need to be obedient, and, and so you need to be an obedient people to the commands of God. And so he says, you should be obeying. And lastly, he says, you need to be a growing church, a growing church. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. He's talking about spiritual growth, about growing stronger in the faith. And so he says, these should be characteristic of you. This is what I want from you as you continue to walk with the Lord. And so this morning we will see these activities and and Paul lays them out for us so that we will be effective in our role as his ambassadors in the world. We want the gospel to go forth, and we want the gospel also to be transformative in our own lives so that we ordain the gospel as it goes forth. So Paul begins by saying, pray, be a praying church. Pray for the ministers of God, for God's ministers. So he begins and he says in verse 1, Finally, now Paul is not stopping here. Normally you hear finally and you think, whew, you close your books and you go home. But this is not what Paul is doing here. The word finally here means as far as the rest is concerned or in addition, or we could paraphrase it now on another theme. In other words, Paul is transitioning to a new topic here and he's not quitting. He's just moving on to the next thing that he wants to say. And so Paul says, I've said, I've already said everything else and now let me give you some practical advice Uh, as I go to a practical section here's what I have to say to you and he says brethren pray for us literally be praying brethren for us now again this is a command Paul is not asking as if this is something that you can give or take he's actually saying you must do this Pray for us, a command. I want, you need to be doing this. This is actually your responsibility. Paul is, is with his missionary team and he says, pray for us. And again, the idea is 
He is focusing their prayers on Paul and the missionary team. He's saying, pray for Paul, pray for Silas, pray for Timothy. We need your prayer. Now, such a prayer request for his readers is characteristic of Paul. He's asked for their prayer before. And Paul is convinced of the power of prayer. And it's interesting here that you have such a strong spiritual man. I mean, when we look at Paul, we think type A. We think nothing phases this guy, right? We think he wrote most, more scripture than any other man, more, more than any other person. He contributed and was so strong in the early church. And yet here he is going to the Thessalonians, this new church, this weak church, this small church, and says, pray for me. And what we see is not only Paul's humility, but we also see Paul's realization that nothing in his ministry would be done outside the power of God. He needed divine empowerment for his work. He couldn't do it in his own strength. He couldn't do it in his own power. He couldn't do it because he was clever or because he was determined. But he needed divine empowerment. And Paul recognized that right away. And we too need to recognize that in our ministry and in our life and in our Christian walk, nothing will get done outside of divine empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So Paul then gives two requests. He says, I want, he says, I want you to pray, first of all, that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Now the word of the Lord here is really speaking primarily of the gospel as Paul goes out and he shares the gospel. And Paul says, I want it to spread rapidly. Now this word rapidly is the word, normal word Greek, for, Greek word for run, to run. It's a metaphor drawn from Paul's athletic background. He seems to like to use athletic metaphors. I use food metaphors. He uses athletic metaphors. We all have our tendencies. And so he says, and so he says, I I want, I want it to spread quickly. And maybe Paul in the back of his mind's and in the back of his mind has Psalm 147.15, which says, He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. It goes quickly. And so there's a sense of urgency here that the word of God it, it needs to go out quickly. It, the church's mission is to take the word and the gospel to the ends of the earth, and it must be done quickly. And so Paul says, I want, I want the word of God. I want the gospel, the saving word, the sanctifying word, the, the word that brings life. And I want it to run across the world. And I want it to be like a strong runner that moves swiftly ahead, that goes down the track like an Olympic runner in the 100 meters. You don't see him with a backpack on his back. You don't see him bringing his water jug just in case he needs to drink halfway through the race, right? He's got, he's got only what's necessary for running, and he's down the track. And there's no obstacles on the track. There's nothing. And Paul says, I want the word of God to spread like that. I want the gospel to go across the world like that. He, in essence, said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Pray on my behalf 
that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of gospel, which I am an ambassador. In other words, take the obstacles. Let me speak. Let me be bold enough to let the gospel out. Let it come out. Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Pray that God may open up the door for the word, that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Paul's desire was that the word would go forth, that the gospel would go to new places, and that it would be heard. He says, I want it to go forth in power. Paul said that the word is powerful. He, t- he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God is what? Not bound. I don't want it to be bound. I want it just to go, freely be given across the world. And so his desire was that the word would sweep powerfully across the land through the hearts of people. Well, Paul just didn't want the word to be heard. He just didn't want it to be spread. And just like, if ever, as long as you put it on a loudspeaker and everybody hears it, it's okay. Paul's desire wasn't just that it would be heard, but he says, I want, to, I want the word to be what? Glorified. I want the word to be glorified. What does he mean by he wants the word to be glorified? Well, the word glorified means honored or admired for its inherent qualities. Paul says, when men see the demonstration of the transforming power of the word in believers' lives, it's what? Glorified. Remember in Acts chapter 13, verse 48? The gospel is now being given to the Gentiles. And Paul writes this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been pointed to eternal life believe, just as you did also with you. The gospel brought rejoicing and glorifying. The phrase means the glory is given to the Lord when the people accept the word. One writer said this, when the word of the Lord is glorified, it means that its hidden character is revealed as the word of life, righteousness and truth. As soon as the word is accepted by faith, it begins to ordain the life of the believer. That is what the apostle wants and prays for here. I want the word to be glorified by its acceptance. And so people grab the word of God and are transformed by it as they are gripped by faith and changed by it. Therefore, their lives now glorify the gospel by their transformation. Now it's interesting because the words really here are keep on running and keep on being honored. In other words, Paul isn't thinking of an isolated victory or a single triumph. He's, think, he's talking about a continuous process. This is what I want to continually be happening. I want it to keep running and I want it to be keep honoring. And everywhere the word goes, I just want it to keep going till it goes through the whole earth and everyone has responded or had a chance to. So Paul says, this is what I want. I want it to, the word to run unhindered. I want it to progress as far and wide. And I want it to be honored, admired, and accepted. And so Paul basically 
says this, as one writer says, is to believe like, believed like a great, powerful, swift runner, the word moving swiftly to victory, to triumph, to be crowned with the winner's crown. I want the word to just keep going until it is what? Glorified. Until it is crowned. And then Paul adds this comment at the end. Just as you did also with you. Just as it did also with you. Denotes really an exact parallel. I want what happened with you to happen everywhere I go. I, I, don't, I don't want it... I don't want it to stop. I don't want it, your, your reaction to be the only one. He says also, so it would seem that others have accepted it well in other places, but Paul wants every community where the gospel is preached for there to be this response. And Paul says it happened with you. The Thessalonians are reminded of how they accepted the gospel. And if we remember in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, how they received the gospel... He said in verse 1-6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with what? The joy of the Spirit. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you how, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. They had received the word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we constantly thank God that you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, what? Which also performs its work in you who believe. Right? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and now it is the word that continues to work in them. And he says, I want the, God, the word of God to be glorified through, like it was in you. Paul knew that it wasn't always the case that it was accepted. But he desired that it would be. So Paul says, Pray for the success of the ministry. Pray, pray for the gospel to go forth. And second, then he says, his second request here is for the safety of the messengers. He says, you need to be praying, not just that the gospel will go forth and receive, but pray for the safety of the messengers. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's pretty hard for the gospel to go forth without any messengers, and and you can't, you can't give the gospel if you're dead, right? Or in jail. Well, you can in jail if you have cellmates, but if not in solitaire. But Paul says, and he, so Paul says, listen, not only do, am I concerned about the gospel, the success of the gospel, but I'm, the safety of the messengers. And he says, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. In other words, Paul could see trouble on the horizon, he could see that things were coming. And we know that Paul did get into trouble in Acts chapter 18. They came and got him at Corinth. So it appears that he's writing this letter before that. He escaped out of a basket. He, his friends were, were, were taken down. So Paul realized that perverse men were coming after him. And he, he asks and he prays, first of all, 
that they will be rescued. Now, the idea here isn't that Paul is saying that, that, guess what? I don't care about my own life. I don't think Paul, sometimes we put Paul on on a pedestal to the point where we we make him non-human. Right? Death is our enemy. So I don't think any of us should be running to death as if this, it's a great thing, right? So Paul isn't saying, I, I, I want to die for Christ in the fact that I just, I just want to die. Paul certainly has the understanding that death is our enemy. But Paul's, and, and we certainly know that Paul was not consumed about his own safety. I mean, I'm certainly sure he didn't want to go into danger, but he certainly did for the gospel's sake because he loved the gospel more than he loved his life. It's not that he didn't love his life, but that he loved the gospel. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the trials that he went through. It wasn't all about self-preservation, and, and, I, and I, I love this passage. He says, I speak as if insane. I so more... I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. This is what I did for the gospel's sake. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's crazy. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep. So those are the things he went through. And then he says, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. Now think about that. Paul was in danger to get to danger. Right? His journeys were dangerous, and he's, he's da- now he's going towards danger. But this is his heart for the gospel. I've been... Sh- in labor and hardship through my many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I hear that one. Apart from external things, there are the daily pressures on me and concern for all the churches. This is Paul's concern for himself. I put myself in all that danger for the gospel's sake. But Paul also knew that if he did, if God's messengers were taken out, there would be no spread of the gospel. And he desired that God would protect him and his ministers. Right? Romans 10, 17, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Matthew 9, 38, Pray the Lord the harvest, therefore to what? Send laborers. Another without laborers, there will be no gospel sent. God has sent people... He uses people to spread the gospel. People will tell you that they're having visions. People will tell you that Christ is appearing to people. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has called us to be his ambassadors. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing what? By the word of God, which means God sends out laborers. How sweet are the feet of them that what? Bring good news. Feet. Feet come with people. Right? And so the gospel goes forth through people. There needs to be messengers. And so he continues to proclaim the gospel. And he says, I want to be rescued. I want to be delivered. 
I want to be taken, kept from those who are described as perverse and evil men. Perverse here has the root meaning of placeless or out of place. It is often applied to things that are out of place, but here it is applied to people. And when it's used in this ethical sense, it has the idea of being improper, unbecoming, inappropriate, hence outrageous, monstrous, and unrighteous. So these are people who are wicked and outrageous and harmful in conduct. And to underscore how dangerous they are, Paul further describes them with the adjective evil. This is more than just badness, but rather active malice. It pictures the vicious, destructive disposition of their enemies. And Paul prays that God will what? Preserve them and rescue Paul seems to be pointing to the, again to the Jews in Acts in, at Corinth, those fanatical Jews who were in opposition to him, as they, he could see the storm clouds coming. And he says, there are these evil men. They are, there are these men who are trying to perverse men, who are coming after us. He says, why? For not, for not all have faith. For not all have faith. This explains the existence of their enemies. Their hostility is due to their lack of faith in the gospel. And there really lies the viciousness of the attack. The truth of the word of God does not warm the heart of the unbeliever unless the Holy Spirit is piercing through that heart. They, re- they respond not, not in, oh, I'm glad you told me, but in what? In absolute hostility and denial of the truth. And he said, and this, this faith here is not speaking of the faith as, as the idea of all that we believe, but rather in the sense of salvation. They're simply not saved. They're non-Christians. And so he says, not all. And there's a reminder that though many within Thessalonica had responded to the gospel, many hadn't, and many continued to harden their hearts and not respond to the gospel So Paul says he wants them to pray. He wants to pray for the success of the, of, the, of the message and the safety of the messengers. He wants to be delivered from these evil men. Sometimes we think that, again, we have this naive idea that people will be thrilled to hear the gospel, but most of the time they're really not. In fact, it only takes a little time of going out and sharing the gospel to realize that most people are happy to talk to you about anything but the gospel. The gospel comes up and woo! People get busy, eyes get glazed, people get hostile, and people leave. And so we need to pray for the safety of those who spread the gospel. We need to pray for those who street witness in our church, those who go out. Pray for the safety of our pastors as they preach the word of God. Pray for the safety of each one of us as we proclaim the truth. And so let us be a church then that is praying what? That we would be part of that solution to spread swiftly the word of God 
and that people would respond and that we would ultimately what? Be kept safe. That God will protect us. So Paul says, be a praying church. Pray for the messengers of God. Pray for those, for the success of the gospel and the safety of those who bring it to others. And then Paul addresses his next concern and the next thing that we should be exemplified by. Not only should we be praying church, but we should be a trusting church. Trusting in the faith, God's faithfulness. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He starts this with this little word, but. And there's kind of a contrast that is being made here. He talked about those who don't have faith. And now he speaks of the Lord who is what? Faithful. Not all have faith. There are those who are faithless. And then there is the Lord who is what? Faithful. And again, they have similar sounding words. This is like Paul to make these little word plays. Those who have no faith, those who not not all have faith, the Lord is what? Faithful. And he makes this contrast. Between God and the satanic forces against him. But God will ultimately triumph. Now, when Paul's writing this letter, he's in Corinth, right? This church is young. He's given them one letter. He's following up again because several months later, and he's not sure how strong the Thessalonians' trust in God is. He has no idea how they are facing the trials and persecutions that are coming upon them. And remember, he's also just prayed that they would pray for him in persecution and trials. And so you can kind of think that there might be a little bit of a panic in the Thessalonians' part because they are saying, well, if Paul's in trouble and we're in trouble, what hope is there? And if Paul goes down, we might go down. And, and, and how, how can we persevere? How can we keep going? Well, Paul says, actually, remember that God is what? Faithful. No matter what difficulties face them, Paul says God will be faithful. He will accomplish His purposes in you. Paul knew a lot about God's faithfulness. Towards the end of his life he wrote, At my first defense no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Paul says, I was, God strengthened me. He was faithful to me. When all others were unfaithful, he was faithful to strengthen and keep me. And so Paul wants to, wants to instill in the Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ruler and defender of his people. And he will always show himself faithful and trustworthy and dependable and fulfilling his promises and maintaining his commitments to them. I want you to notice that little word is. 
the Lord is faithful. It doesn't say he will be faithful. It doesn't say he was faithful. He says the Lord, what, is faithful, present tense, always. Now, if you came to Bible Training Institute, you will remember that we said that God dwelled in the eternal present. He is always in the present for God. And here he is what? Always faithful. There's never a time that he's not faithful. He's present right now and he continues to be faithful and he will always be faithful. And he's faithful in the past because he's faithful now. And he's faithful in the, he will be faithful in the future because he is what? Ever in the state of being faithful. He's never not faithful. That's who he is. He is in the state the present state of always <clears throat> being faithful. This was certainly a, an attribute of God in the Old Testament that was continually brought out. God is faithful. Scripture is replete with affirmation of his faithfulness. And so Paul he wants to say, well, how is God going to be faithful to the Thessalonians? It's good that he's faithful. It's good that he, he is always true to his words. But how is he going to be faithful to the Thessalonians? Well, he says this, he will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. And again, he says he, he will strengthen you. This speaks of inward stabilization and strengthening, inner security. In other words, God will continue to give you inward strength. He will be working in you. He will be empowering you. He will be building up the inner man, as it were. He will give you the ability to have peace in your heart and security and set on the truths of the word of God without budging. And he says, he will build you up inside. You'll, have, you'll be strengthened like propping up a building. He will keep, he will put all his support around you and you will be strengthened. And then he says this, not only will he give you inward grounding, but he will give you outward safety. He says to protect, to convey the idea, a military image implying conflict and armed protection and violent attacks. And he says, you are protected from the outside, there's outside safety here, and you are protected, what, from the evil one. In other words, you are protected from the attacks of Satan. We've been given the armor of God, we know, in Ephesians chapter 6. And now the Satan, as he attacks us, can never overcome us. He can never shake us from our faith. He can never shake us from God's purposes in our lives. And so as Satan, Satan comes with his fiery darts, when he comes seeking whom he may devour, we have what? Nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. And God will keep us and he will guard us. He's going to make you strong. He's going to put a, a wall around you and guard you from the evil one. Inner security and strength, outer protection. The faithful Lord guards his own, strengthening them and walling them off. He guards them from the enemy. And Paul says, listen, don't be afraid. 
God is with you and he, is, he will give you the strength to persevere. He will give you the strength to carry on. He will protect you, the evil one. None of the temptations will overcome of you. None of the trials will overcome you. God is faithful to his own. He is faithful to his people. He's loyal to his servants. He's loyal to his shepherds. He's loyal to his people. Ministry will go on. Well, Paul says, not only are we to pray, not only are we to trust, but we are to be exemplified as those who obey, be, are obedient or be obeying God's commands. He says in verse 4, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are that you are doing and will continue to do what we have commanded. This is his third desire for them. And again, he assures them that they have confidence in them. It's kind of interesting because as he pronounces confidence in them, he's kind of uh, tactfully recognizing that the the readers actually need to be obedient, right? It's kind of one of those things, well, I know you're doing this, and you can almost see them going, well, are we? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, but he puts a little bit of a pressure on there by a compliment in some ways. And so he's entrusting, he says, the safety of the flock to the Lord. He says, we have compliment. We, I mean, we have confidence. We have confidence, and, and again, in the Lord concerning you. In other words, principally, it's not their confidence isn't based in the behavior of the Thessalonians, but what? In the Lord. Their confidence is not really in the reality of human nature, but rather in the Lord who will. We remember Philippians, right? He working out what he is what working in you. He is, to, he is working in you to what? To will and to do what? His good pleasure. He is working in you so that these things happen. Paul has just talked about God's, own, God's ongoing work in them. And within that sphere, he can, what? he can rest. In other words, he recognizes that it is God who is doing this. God will be bringing it about. And he says, we hold it in you because we know that God is what? Working in you. You are his child. He is working in you. And he says, this confidence is that you are doing and will continue to do what we command you. I want, therefore, he says, I want you to recognize that you already are doing some of the things that we've done, we've asked you to do. And again, this is a command. This isn't a suggestion or advice. It's binding orders. And he says, and he softens it, and will continue to do what we command. In other words, you're, you've already started to do it, and we know that you will continue to do it, and all of the commands that come from the Lord through the Word of God, you will what? You will do. I give you full credit for your performance now, and a confidence that you will continue to do so. 
They have no doubt, no reason to doubt their converse at this point. And so as Paul comes, he says, you will, you will continue to do what? What we command. Now that sounds pretty earth, that sounds pretty fleshly, doesn't it? Pretty authoritative. I mean, after all, he's just a man. But Paul knows he's coming what as one that has a delegated authority. He speaks the word of God, not his own words. He's not coming to give his own ideas, but God's. First, remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, he says, You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of what? The Lord Jesus. In other words, when we command you, we are simply giving you what? The commandments of God. These aren't our ideas. These come with God's authority. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, Teach them to observe all the things, whatever, what? I have commanded you. And Paul says, when I speak to you, or whenever a pastor speaks, or someone brings the word of God, and he brings it in truth, guess what? There's an authority there. There's an authority there. And that's the thing, when you come to church, you don't come to church and it's not like a buffet where you get, where the pastor says all of the truths of the word of God and you said, I like this one. Yeah, but this one, not so much, right? And you put that one aside. These two I like, but this, that's just offensive, right? But when we come, right? And the word of God is preached and the truth of the word of God is spoken. These are commands. And there's an authority there. And trust me, if your heart's not right and the pastor starts saying, this is what the word of God says, you go, boy, is he arrogant. Well, that's partly right. But the thing is, is that it's, we often are responding to what? The authority of the word of God. And we assume because the pastor says it, he must be arrogant because he's so sure. But the reality is the word of God is very sure and it's very clear. And so it, it must be spoken and then we must respond by what? Obedience. Paul told, said to Timothy, these things command and what? Teach. They're not options. So the, what's the proper response to a command? Obedience, Right? Obedience. That's the duty of the people. The pastor speaks the word of God. You don't obey the pastor. You obey who? The word of God. And by the way, it's thrilling when you see people take the word of God and live it obediently. Nothing can thrill your heart more. So Paul says we need to be an obeying congregation. We must take the commandments of the word of God and we must what? Obey them. This should be an ex uh, who we are. A praying church who's trusting in God's character and protection and what? Continues to in obedience to him. Well, the last thing that we see then this morning 
is that we need to be a growing church, a growing church. May the Lord, Paul says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's Paul's cry. Really, it's a, it's a cry to, uh, to growth, a cry, a call to maturity. Directing your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ is just putting you deeper and deeper into your relationship with God and Christ. That's what we want to see, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And it's sad when you see a church where that doesn't happen, where the word of God is preached and people don't respond. Where what's preached is so shallow that there's nothing to grow, there's no nutrients and no one can grow. But what a blessing when a church begins to mature as it takes the truths of the word of God and implements them into their lives and allows the Holy Spirit to take them and to make them their convictions and they start to live out the truths of the Word of God. They start to grow. There starts to be a spiritual power as they grow. So Paul says, may the Lord direct you. May he be the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. May he direct your hearts. Make it, the word direct, make straight. It's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 3.11. It conveys a picture of opening the way by removal of obstacles so that the desired goal may be reached. And he's saying, I want the Lord Jesus Christ to start directing your heart. I want, as it were, for this to happen by divine providential controlling of human action. I want God to be moving in your heart. I want him to be the one who is pushing you into this so that you will grow. I don't want spiritual growth to come to a halt. I want you to continue to grow in your hearts and your inner persons into the love of God. to increase in this love. In other words, the idea here can be the love of God means that you love God or God loves you. It can be either one. And I think maybe the, the, the language here is ambiguous enough and, and broad enough to take in two. And we could say this, our love for God produces, no, uh, I think, this gives the, the truth that God, sorry, I lost my plate. God's love for us as it is experienced by us produces a reciprocal response of love in our hearts for him. In other words, his, he loved us. We now what? Love him. Right? To be in God is to be love. We love him because he first loved us. And so the idea is his, God's love for us as we experience this produces a, a response in us to love him. Only our love for God produced and stimulated by our experience of his love will motivate us to joyful obedience to the commandments of God. You hear that? Only the love of, 
love of God or our love for God produced and will, will produce and stimulate our experience and motivate us to obedience to God's commands. In other words, the only way that you will ultimately obey God is if you love him. And you have to love him more than you love your sin. So Paul says, I want you to continue to grow in the love of God. I want you to experience his love and I want your love to reciprocate to God because I want you to be able to be obedient to him. And you will never be obedient when, until you love him. We spend so much time trying not to do things and we have this idea that if we can just prevent it, you know, and stop it happening. And so we spend a lot of effort in, in, in trying to refrain from things rather than actually spending time promoting our affections for God. You want victory in your life. It's not because you're weak. Well, you are weak. But it's not because you don't have the ability. It's because your affections are on the wrong spot. Your affections are on the wrong spot. You love your sin more than you love God. And so you need to ask God that you might grow in the love of God so that you love him more than you love your sin. And when you love him more than your sin, you want to please him more than you want that sin and you will live in obedience to him. And so Paul says, I want this for you. I want you to grow. I want you to continue to go forward. And then he says, not only do I want to direct your hearts into the love of God, but into the steadfastness of Christ. Into the steadfastness of Christ. In other words, he says, I want you to be to grow stronger, to grow stronger in your Christian walk. The idea here is the idea of endurance. Endurance is, is, is like getting a muscle that gets stronger. You, you run, you get stronger, you can now run harder, which means you can what? Take more load. Paul says, I want you to learn to, be in, to endure. I want you to be able to stay under the load, to bear an unusually unusually heavy load. I want you to be able to stay under persecution. I want you to stay under trials and temptations. And I want you to grow stronger and stronger. And I want your muscles to grow so that next time you, the temptation comes, you're strong enough to hold it. And then when you're strong enough and you get stronger from that exercise, your muscles are bigger, you more temptation, more trials, more troubles, tribulations come. And he says, this is what I desire for you. And I desire you for you to do that, what? In the steadfastness of Christ, in the endurance of Christ. In other words, I want Christ to be your example. He's, he's the example of enduring on the cross. Hebrews 12.2, he says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured. He was faithful to the end. And Christians are to follow that example. Hebrews 12.2.1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance of sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is what? 
set before us. Christ is our example. He is the one who endured. He lived a perfect life here on earth, endured the cross for us, and we too need to learn to endure, to increase in strength, to stand against temptation, against trials, against suffering, against disappointment, against sorrow, whatever it might be. And that's spiritual growth. That's spiritual development to get stronger and stronger in the strength of Christ and be able to endure more difficult challenges, more difficult temptation, more difficult trials. And that's what Paul wants for his people. This is what he desires for them. And we know that ultimately endurance is an expression of love and perseverance demonstrates that we are saved. Matthew 10:22, you will be hated by all of my name because of my name, but is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. And so Paul desires that we grow in endurance and steadfastness in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, this is what we need to be doing. These are the activities that we need to be doing as a church. We need to be a praying church, upholding those who are in ministry. We need to be a church that is a trusting church, a church that is obedient and a church that is growing. And this is Paul's mandate for us. Let us take up the challenge. Let us take up this exhortation. Let us be known as a church that is a praying church, a church that is a trusting church, a church that is obedient, and a church that continues to grow into the knowledge and the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for this challenge this morning. And I pray that you would make us those who would take up these exhortations from Paul. And that you would help us to keep these in mind. And I pray that we would actually be a praying church. That we would consider the necessity of the spread of the gospel. And that we wouldn't just think that it needs to be spoken. But we would recognize the necessity of it, of it spreading quickly. And that we must be about it. We pray for safety in that. Lord, help us to rest in your faithfulness that your purposes for us will not be thwarted and whatever you have for us, you will strengthen and protect us from Satan. We will never be overcome. Help us to be willing to be obedient to your word. Help us who are doing well to do better. Help us who are doing poorly to get started. And Lord, we pray that you will be merciful to us and that we will continue to grow into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the praise of your glory, I pray. Amen.